This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and to see all the other classics in their series. We do thank you for joining today's conversation. We're digging into this fall series called What We Make of Ourselves. Week by week, we're going to work our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We're going to identify themes from this 19th themes from this 19th century classic because it has much to say to us about life today in the 21st century. And Hannah Really, every time I'm out and about reading about what's going on in the world, I feel like we need as much wisdom as possible because there are things that seem to be kind of common sense or I thought they were common sense and then they get kind of flipped, turned upside down, inside out, and it just baffles me. And so I feel like we need all the wisdom we can get. Well, that's a much more polite way of saying it than what I said to my kids this morning at breakfast. We were talking about something. I don't know it was. And I just looked at them and I said, I am sorry. This is an incredibly stupid time to be alive. (laughs) That is more pointed. And yet I think it sums it up quite well. (laughs) This is a stupid time to be alive. Yeah. Sorry, children. The world is weird like this is just just a dumb season of humanity and (laughs) my my favorite thing i've come across lately is uh, tom nichols is a writer thinker he wrote the death of expertise a couple years ago and his tagline recently has become we are not a serious people and he just means we're not mature people we're not serious minded about the challenges that we're facing in life and so i translated that to my teenagers as this is just a really dumb time to be alive i like that um summary or that that label we're not a serious people because i sadly i think we think we are (laughs) i think in general most people assume oh no we are quite serious and quite astute and we know what's going on and and yet we reveal it otherwise all the time yeah but but i think part of the reason why we think we're serious is because we have so much technological advancement so so we we have these capacities and we have amazing technology at our fingertips, and yet we can't escape the very basic foundational questions about human existence. And so I think that's fascinating, too, because it's a lot of what we're seeing within this book 
within Frankenstein, this tension between, all right, you've got tech advances. Does that make you a better person? Yeah, probably not. No. So you've got these scientific capacities that are in tension with your underlying humanity, not to give away too much of today's episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this is the same thing that we are wrestling with in terms of we think of ourselves as advanced modern thinkers, creatures, and yet we still have a hard time relating well to each other and and treating each other with with respect and with care. And you'd think that with all the books that we have and all the wisdom that we have collected over all the centuries that we'd be in a better spot to relate better to each other. And yet we still miss it. So often we can't seem to connect well with other people or care well for other people. And we can't seem to have empathy for other people. We we just mess and bungle up left and right in our interactions with each other. It, it is fascinating that we live perhaps in one of the most connected moments in history where like we're using the language of social media and friends and likes. And the truth is it's a very unsociable place more often than not. And there's a lot more hatred than likes going on. And so it really does highlight this tension between the fact that we can have all of the infrastructure to be good people and to relate to each other well, and at the end of the day, just still be awful. And, you know, not to minimize that, like, I don't want to put the bar too high. I I am asking just for basic level humanity (laughs) and respect. And to your point, even empathy, like just the ability to to understand and provide a level of compassion to people within their suffering, because there sure is a lot of suffering going on right now. There is. There's plenty of suffering going on right now. And I mean, we've mentioned this before. It's hard to get away from it. But there is this thing going on with the pandemic and the ongoing I've heard suffering. That. You've heard of it. Yes, we've had this going on. And it's amazing to me how quickly um, empathy can evaporate toward people who are suffering from it. And I think that that's concerning that we can toss away, um, like you said, just common kindness, common manners, common humanity of, ooh, there's someone who's suffering. Maybe we should do something or maybe we should care. And um There are plenty of cases, I'm sure all you listeners out there have seen articles and references to um, drastic um, maybe solutions to the problem of people who are suffering who um, maybe shouldn't receive care or they deserve what they get or whatever that might be. I think that these are um, telling comments to the condition of our hearts and, and things that we need to look at a bit more deeply, which I'm glad we have classics like this to turn to and say, oh, wow, we aren't that much different, are we? Yeah. Because today, we're going to really turn our attention to that question of suffering. Um, What do we make of our suffering? And even suffering that we bring upon ourselves. I I do think you're right. I'm seeing the same kind of callousness toward people who maybe um, who have contracted COVID. And like the first questions people ask are, well, was he vaccinated? Did she go someplace? Did she wear a mask? And and, and we want to know, can I empathize with you? Can I help you relieve your suffering um, only if you're innocent? 
And so there's this really uh, remarkable tension that comes out in this section of the reading about questions about human suffering, um, who can be a true sufferer, uh, what do we do with our own suffering? And it really was fascinating how this section um, in volume one, chapters four through seven, bring all that to the forefront and really have a great deal of relevance on a lot of what we're dealing with today. And it's so well written. I think that it, it pulls you into the story in a way that teaches you almost without you realizing that you are are seeing firsthand suffering and progression and and literary works allow that they let you come into a story as someone who's in the middle of it but you it's not your story so since it's not yours and it's not personal it helps you to process a little bit better what's going on so why don't i start with that recap um i can go through and give the highlights where we left off last time um in Interestingly enough, we had gotten 70 plus pages in, and yet we still weren't at the point where the monster comes to life. But guess what? Right here in chapter four, that is what happens within the first few paragraphs. Victor Frankenstein is the scientist. He's a student scientist, and he has been um, practicing putting corpse parts together and he animated this corpse and brought it to life and so that's what happens right off in chapter four and uh, immediately upon this creature coming to life Victor realizes that he has done something that he should not have done and so um he races from the room, oddly enough, and then walks out the door and spends the night wandering around town. And when he comes back, the monster's gone. And so that was it. Hannah, I, I just have to pause here and even say to readers, I couldn't believe that it was sort of like creature alive. And then three paragraphs later, he's wandering around town. Victor's wandering around town and he comes back and the monster's gone. And I'm like, oh, that could be the end of the story. <laughs> Like, this is it. We've had no interaction here. So that's um, the beginning of this volume um, or these chapters that for this reading in volume one, um, the the rest of this reading is Victor dealing with the consequences of what he has done and very well written, a um, lot of anguish, soul-searching, concern about what he has done and what does it mean. And he falls ill because, as Hannah, what you had mentioned, yes, you, you, you do have great concern and your body falls apart to yourself. So he took to his bed. He... Um, I think it was a span from like November to March, it says that he um, was really struggling and couldn't function. He he needed to be cared for. A friend came and, and cared for him and his studies stopped. And he has told no one about what he has done. So um, the next chapter gets into a letter that he receives from home. If you remember, Victor had um, a close family structure with his father and his brothers. And then there was this cousin who had grown up with them, Elizabeth, his cousin Elizabeth, who was also his love interest. Um, 
And so Elizabeth writes this lengthy letter to Victor and is concerned about his health and and also wanting to reconnect and reestablish relationship because Victor had really been sucked into all of his experiments for years. And so she also, in this letter, introduces a new character to the story. And this new character, her name is Justine. Justine was another person that was brought into Victor Frankenstein's childhood home and and raised there. Justine um, was kind of like a helper servant, and yet she was also a beloved member of the family. So um, now wait, wait, I need to stop you there a minute, Erin, because like last time we talked about this being a frame novel. So I just want to make sure listeners know where we are in this novel. So Victor is reading a letter that Elizabeth has written. So so Elizabeth writes a letter to Victor, but Victor is now telling Robert about the letter that Elizabeth has written to him. But Robert is actually telling his sister Margaret in a letter about Victor telling him about the letter that Elizabeth has written to him about this story of Justine. Correct? Is that I'm where we're so at? I'm so glad that like, you could keep that straight. Yes. The nesting. It's, it is hard to follow because you're diving deep. <laughs> so thank you for summarizing that. Yes. So we've got this letter from Elizabeth telling oh, us about this get new character. <laughs> it just keeps going. And so now we have this new character, Justine. And... We just know, okay, here's this person. Um, As this story, this section progresses, uh, we also continue to learn more about Victor and his recovery from falling ill after his experiment has gone awry. And sometime in that span, we don't know quite yet how long it's been. He then gets a letter from his own father. So now there's another letter. Victor gets a letter from his father, and it has terrible news because Victor's young brother, William, has been murdered, and therefore Victor needs to come home. Now, at this point, we're realizing that Victor has been away from home for six years. That's a very long time. What is also clarified is that it is two years since the experiment, two years since this monster has come to life. And there has been not a peep made by Victor to anyone about any of it. And so I'm assuming that he's just kind of moving on and acting like, well, maybe that thing can just... um, we can pretend like it's never happened. I don't know. That's maybe the hope, which is probably the source of a whole bunch of his inner suffering, which he continues to describe um, as he relays his story. So Victor needs to go home. And as he's traveling home, he's distraught and in the middle of the night. And guess who he encounters but the monster. And all of a sudden, Victor realizes this is the murderer this is this is the creature that has killed my brother because this creature is now near my my home and now victor is completely distraught undone so he's completely distraught he gets home and what unfolds is that justine has been accused of this murder and so 
Victor is saying, no, 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 I know who the murderer is, or it's not her, but Justine. But I can't tell you who it is. Just I can't tell you who it is. It's not Justine. Just, it's not her. But. And no one would have assumed it was Justine because everyone loved Justine. But all of a sudden, she's whisked away and accused of murder. And very quickly, there's a trial. And then. And circumstantial evidence. Oh, yeah. All and, the circumstantial evidence. And passions evidence. are high. And, and, and the crowd needs a resolution to this That's awful right. crime. They, they needed a murderer. And Justine seemed to fit the bill. <laughs> so they. Um, they go through this trial, and uh, Victor is again just beside himself. So, so much suffering. There, there's so much detail about his inner turmoil during the trial that he cannot believe this innocent girl is going to be condemned, and yet she ends up being condemned. And not only that, she's put to death. And that brings us to the end of this reading. Um, there's so much uh, emotion described throughout this reading, Hannah. Very well done. Um, you can really follow that um, kind of like that circular nature of our emotions and how they build and they swirl. And it feels almost like a tornado, that whirling and swirling and you're stuck inside and feeling trapped as if you can't stop the events that have started and you feel completely out of control. And I think that um, Mary Shelley has done a really good job explaining how terrible circumstances can just somehow explode and blossom and create even more and more suffering and sorrow because of it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You know, you're absolutely right about the kind of um, swirling nature of this section where it's just suffering upon suffering and you start with Victor's anguish and despair over having created this monster and not knowing what to do and and yet um, there's this tension too because one of the themes that Shelley is working with throughout the length of the book is when you are in suffering or when suffering comes to you, how much can you control of it? How much can you respond to it? And how much does it just play out like this kind of uh, free will agency question versus like, this is just the way it's going to be. It's horrible. Life is suffering and these things come upon you. And one of the things that really struck me in this section was the kind of parallelism to how different characters responded to their suffering and what they did with it, um, and the difference between being an innocent sufferer, which Justine was. Um, Justine suffered not just in being unjustly tried and executed, which, you know, would be quite enough for any one person, but like her childhood also had a great deal of misunderstanding and suffering within it. And yet she maintained a capacity of, it describes her um, in very 
affectionate and glowing terms. But then we've got Victor, who is in the midst of the swirl of suffering that maybe he has initiated, and he's completely um, paralyzed by it. And even as he's watching the trial play out, he doesn't do anything. He, he knows Justine is innocent. He, he knows her suffering is unjust, but, but he tends to talk about the, the torture of watching it happen. So, so he says things like, I suffered living torture, um, at, you know, at this lawless kind of the trial. And, and he rushed, I rushed out of the court in agony. Um, but at the same time, he, he is despairing over the fact that she is being victimized, but he resolves to say nothing. I'm not going to say anything. I don't know that people would understand what happened with this being I created. And so there's this really interesting question about our proximity to suffering and what uh, we are responsible for. And, and, and it's fascinating, even within the storyline, that at times it seems like Victor is abandoning responsibility, but then other times he's taking more responsibility on himself. Um, then he seems to have this really poor relationship or understanding of what are you responsible for and what are you not responsible for in terms of the suffering in the world. Well, I think when we are under our own mental anguish, it's, it is that, um, that pendulum swing, the back and forth between one extreme and the other. Oh, I can't do anything. Oh my gosh, it's all my fault. (laughs) And I think that in the middle of anguish, when you are suffering, you do sway from side to side. And I think that's why it's so helpful to have someone who you can lay it all out and explain what's going on and they can become that that sure point that sure center point of what is reality what what is it that i'm responsible for what is it that i can do um what is it that is not mine to bear if you don't have that you're stuck in your own mind trying to sort it out and it's very hard to do and i think that's what victor has has put himself in this position because he hasn't told anybody what he's done. And it's been years. And so he has been living with that in his own mind for years. And so I think that to me, it it reveals what happens when you don't have someone to share these things with. And, and friendship and, and connectedness, that's a a big part of this novel. Who can we lean on? Who's who are who are our partners, and and who can we be connected to in friendship? And so I think that that's a big part of it for him. That's a really significant point because his suffering and anguish drives him to isolation. And repeatedly within this section, he's like, "I can't tell anybody. I can't tell any. I really want to say this, but I can't tell anybody." And so even like the friend that comes, Henry that comes to care for him, I believe it was Henry, um, he doesn't say anything. Like there's no explanation for his anguish and pain. His family sees that he's under great mental and emotional duress, but he won't vocalize it. He, he won't explain his predicament. And, and so there's this isolating nature to it that, yeah, he is left entirely within his own head and he doesn't have um, any kind of perspective outside of 
his engagement with that suffering. But I will say this. I really do appreciate that within this um, novel, taking to your bed is a completely legitimate option for dealing yes. with emotional I, and mental I think so too. fatigue. Yes. I think we I, should bring back taking to your yes. bed. Like make taking to your bed great again. I like this because I am a huge proponent of rest and people tease me because I really do enjoy a good nap. And I know that this taking to your bed, I mean, he did this for six months, but I do think that there's something about rest and <laughs> something that's very needed and it helps the soul. So I'm just going to say that. But I, I think... Um, Mary Shelley uh, has done a really good job of painting the inner world of our emotions and our thoughts and how those things drive us. And this is something that we should consider because mental health and um, those questions, how do we deal with that and how do we care for each other in it? That's that's huge today. And I feel like there, in some ways we're making strides, but I don't think we're normalizing the debilitating factor that comes when you are under deep stress. And I feel like we just tend to think, push through, push through, keep going. And and I respect that a great deal. But I want to pull back just a minute here because, like, I I appreciate, like, the inner anguish of Victor, whatever, you reanimated the dead and that was overwhelming. And now your brother has been murdered by the being that you reanimated. And then this other woman is accused of it, falsely accused and executed. Yeah, that's a lot to handle. But someone was murdered and someone was unjustly accused. And so there's also where friendship and friends can help give you perspective, like the facts can give you perspective too. So like just spanning out a bit, it it did feel like Victor's inability to face reality and face the world and the suffering of other people, his own suffering took precedent over the true and real suffering of other people around him. So, like, I am all for, you know, investigating our emotions and our inner life. And, you know, I'm sure that'll come up later again. But, like, at the at this really base level, like, dude, you can't just walk out of a courtroom when you know that this person is being falsely accused. You can't keep quiet. And even if to some degree, even if to some degree you become a victim of something that's outside of you, you you made a mistake, you didn't, or even you're a completely innocent sufferer, you're responsible to do something with that bad thing. Like, I think that might be the difference between, um, you know, we talked about we talk about in broader culture becoming a victim versus a survivor. Um, and and the, the nuance there is that a survivor is someone who is overcoming their suffering in order to keep it from passing it on to another person. And so you become this like stopping point where like suffering's horrible and bad things happen in this world. But I, insofar as I can, I'm not going to pass it on to another human being and like victor was all fine and good with it being passed on (laughs) he wasn't doing anything like he really hated that it did but he wasn't doing anything (laughs) to stop it either it it was very strange how his inner turmoil did not motivate him 
to action. There was no, um, oh, now I will do this. Um, it, it, he voiced his certainty that Justine was innocent, and yet it's not like he went to the officials. He like, he talked about it with this. Elizabeth. Yeah, me. I know. <laughs> I know she's innocent. That's it. I I think that his inability to reconcile what he had done and then how there were now consequences for this creature that he had created there there were things happening and moving forward beyond what he anticipated but it's almost like he couldn't face reality that he did that and because he couldn't face reality then it's almost like he it was that paralysis. It's like he got stuck in that spot of, oh, no, it's here and it's happened, but there's nothing I can do about it because he couldn't own up to what he had done. Yeah, so and I think that paralysis can come both when we are the cause of suffering because we're paralyzed by guilt or we're paralyzed by, you know, even taking more guilt on ourselves than is re- reasonable. But we can also get paralyzed when suffering comes to us, even innocently, where um, it's so debilitating that we don't have a way to overcome it. And and I'm not talking about like minimizing it because I've seen that. And I've seen that even within the church that, you know, suffering comes and a real quick, easy response is, well, God is sovereign, you know. God allowed this and good will come. Everything will happen for a reason. Um, so there's like, because we can't overcome or pass through suffering and get to the other side, it's too much. We minimize it and we say, well, you know, in the grand scheme, this was inevitable and God, this is God's plan. Or we turn on the person and are like, well, what did you do? Like, even with COVID, it's like, well, did you get vaccinated? Did you wear a mask? And so then we want to find um, the cause or assign blame and say, well, your suffering is your own fault. Therefore, I don't have to be empathetic. And we can even do that to ourselves. Like, I caused this. And that's what Victor does. I caused this. I'm to blame. Blah, blah, blah. And and you, you can't even pass through the suffering in that respect because you're just so stuck in being especially awful like right right (laughs) like I'm more awful than anybody else (laughs) so there's got to be a way especially as Christians for us to acknowledge suffering speak truthfully about it in its depth and its absolute terribleness and awfulness to enter into it emotionally and mentally to validate the anguish both of being an innocent sufferer being the cause of suffering um and yet come through the other side where it doesn't become the last word um and and i think maybe that is the the story of the gospel though when you think about it Um, Christ is taking on the suffering of the world on the cross, both suffering that is innocent, he particularly is an innocent sufferer, but taking on the sin of the world, he's taking on all of the guilt that caused the suffering, all all of the, 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 the mistakes and sins and motivations that even bring evil upon us. And in being this innocent 
sacrifice, this innocent victim, he also becomes the victor. So, so he passes through it to be raised on the other side. And I think there's a sense in which that might be the prototype for how we respond to suffering. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because without that, um, without Christ as the example and the model and and the one to lean on in suffering, I think it's near impossible to push through and in a healthy way, because like what we were seeing with with Victor, it's like one wrong decision leads to another. And I, I think that we're, we can get so caught up because suffering is so painful and isolating. I think that we need a model and a way to look at suffering and to deal with suffering, our own and others. Without that, without knowing that there is mercy and forgiveness and an answer to suffering, I don't like to own up to my own, the suffering that I've caused. I mean, it's overwhelming, just like what we see with Victor. It is overwhelming. You feel terrible that even if you didn't intend for it to happen, you you do know that you've caused pain for other people. And also the pain that I have incurred, like the pain that I have walked through, I, I don't think I could bear that, um, sustain it and move through it without... Um, the mercy of Christ. So I do think that this is an answer. Not to put too much emphasis on Victor, but every character in this section isn't really responding to suffering in a very healthy way. Um, Victor is the most obvious, and we have the most information about his internal process of his own guilt and agony. But even like Elizabeth, when she is visiting with Justine toward the end in the prison, and She's relieved when she finds out that Justine actually is an innocent. So it's like, oh, well, you're going to die and be unjustly executed. But I feel a whole lot better knowing you didn't actually do this. So so there's like this detachment, you know, like I'm not entering into your suffering. I'm just focusing on the fact that I feel a whole lot better. Now I don't have to feel bad. Right. But <laughs> even I Justine. Don't have to feel so bad for you. So one of the other interesting kind of minor points is even Justine is bullied into a false confession, um, I believe by a cleric or a priest who's like, if you don't confess this, you're not going to heaven. And so she she gives a temporary false confession that, yes, I will take this guilt on me. I did this. And, and instead of, to your point of Christ being both the the example of how to carry unjust suffering and how to resolve, you know, the suffering that we bring into the world, you're really left to your own devices. And it's no wonder that as human beings, these are the best ways we can come up with to reconcile our suffering and the suffering that we put on others. And so in some ways, it's no wonder that suffering compounds and there's just suffering upon suffering because we're all struggling to try to figure this thing out. I think um, having the model and of, of how Jesus did that and the hope of the gospel, that obviously gives us some perspective and some hope that there can be um, 
moments <laughs> where we walk this out well and where we aren't stumbling and making things worse in our suffering. Um, but it's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the redemption. And I think that um, reading through a book like Frankenstein, I think because it's consolidated, I mean, it actually moves pretty quick. I mean, we're here, what, on page, we're only on page like 120-ish. I, I feel like a lot has happened in a short amount of time because you're able to move through time a little bit more quickly. But it gives us that perspective of what can happen and how things can pile up. And maybe we don't want to have these same actions reflected in our own lives. So I appreciate being able to dig in and talk these things out. Yeah, and that's, a again, a much more mature response than I was going to offer because, oh, um, like to hear that one. <laughs> you know, I'm more inclined to just be like, I am so much better than Victor. I would never <laughs> do that. And in fact, that's the kind of challenge I want to offer to listeners. You know how we love to engage in conversation on the episodes that we have. Um, join us and just tell us what particular part of this reading in which Victor was terrible and awful. Which one Which one hit you in a unique sort of way? <laughs> there were plenty to pick there from. There were plenty of options. <laughs> and my particular favorite was like, I resolved to say nothing. Um, because that sums up about everything that happens in the second half of this reading. But seriously, thank you for joining us in this read-along. Um, next week, we're going to tackle our third reading, which is Volume 2, Chapters 1 through 4. If you're in the B&H copy, it's pages 129 to 162. So feel free to take some time and catch up with us, and we'll tackle that next episode. And um, between now and then, feel free to join us out on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC or in the Members Forum um, where we will continue to have conversation around this novel. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them in iTunes. Thanks so much for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.